computers. This is Intelligent Performance. Welcome to Intelligent Performance, where we are fanatical about excellence in human endeavor. And today we welcome back Noah Healy, the founder of Cordisk and the founder also of the Coordinated Discovery Market, also known as the CDM. And to regular listeners to this podcast, you will recognize Noah's name from last year. And we've invited him back because simply this was one of the most listened to episodes last year about what's going on in that space around how the commodity trading markets are effectively stacked in the favor of the people navigating or coordinating the deal and not really of service to either the supplier which obviously bringing the commodity to the market or the buyer on the other end which is providing the actual value in the marketplace so we do a quick catch up we know how we talk about the global economy and what's happening in that space and thank you so much for joining us i'm no doubt you will enjoy this conversation Noah, welcome back to the show. It is fab to have you with us. And where I'd love to kick off is what's new in your world in terms of when we last connected with you in this whole kind of coordinated discovery market. So maybe it might be worth doing a bit of a refresher about what this whole conversation was and where we dived in October. Yeah, sure. Coordinated discovery markets first are my my system for changing how we operate financial markets in a way that basically puts actual economic development and value front and center, whereas the existing markets are centered around advantageous deal flow. And unfortunately, they have disconnected themselves from the economy. So the markets are now not related to the economy, yeah. uh, which is... Which we have a lot of cultural baggage associating the two of them, and that's just not the way it works anymore because we just have AIs lying to each other inside the marketplace, and so it's just nonsense. So that's what I've been working on. In that space, there actually have been a few things. I guess the big one for me is that I've gotten a couple of semi-volunteer salespeople, if they can make a kill, then they'll get a feast to try to search around the world for deals. And I also very recently dug up a company called, I believe it's a BAX. It's like A-B-A-X-X, but they run the Smarter Markets podcast and they're a bunch of mining engineers and market right. specialists that are trying to upgrade industrial metals Basically, because of historical accidents, the industrial metals global marketplace is run out yep. of the city of London. And, and mostly what they care about is like steel, aluminum, and copper because 200 years ago, those were the industrial metals. But these days, people care a lot more about the right kind of sand for silicon and battery technologies like cobalt and lithium and these other things. And the way those things presently work is London just makes up what those numbers are. They have researchers. They are the authoritative researchers. They say what the number is. And that's basically what the number is. And then that serves- Pretty antiquated system. You might recall about a decade ago when the LIBOR scandal came out. I don't, but refresh my memory. So the LIBOR was the London interbank rate. And so this gets into the technicalities of how banks work. But basically, 
anyone who's ever seen It's a Wonderful Life understands that banks don't actually have a vault of cash like mm. Scrooge McDuck back there. Uh, <laughs> it's just all moving around all the time. And yeah. so on any given day, the bank might not actually have enough cash to cover its liabilities, but some bank does. And so banks loan each other money basically every day to make sure that everything's balanced out. Yeah. And so the rate that banks charge each other for that is in high, theoretically very tightly coupled to just how off the deep end things actually are, how unbalanced and crazy stuff is. Yep. And so the city of London being the most important banking center on earth, their interbank rate was the most important global indicator of credit risk on the right. planet. And so that was London interbank rate or LIBOR. And that was if you have ever bought a house or a car or owned a credit card. Mm. Back then, that's what it was based off of. And then a trove of emails and other materials came to light. So the way the LIBOR was calculated was somebody I believe it was from the Financial Times would call up like his old school buddies at the major banking institutions <laughs> and say, Hey, man to man, what are you, what are you quoting? What are you, what are you getting out there? Yeah. And wow. he'd jot those numbers down on a post-it note and then average them together and then stick it in the times at the end of the book. Um, wow. Or at least that's what he was supposed to be doing <laughs> as crazy as that sounds. But yeah. of course, what he was actually doing was, conspiring with his buddies to manipulate the global credit systems and they could make more money and they're <laughs> yes but then then everybody found out that's what was actually going on <laughs> wow and, and how did this how does this parallel with what you're focused on in terms of this place so for the price of cobalt for example the nominal way that cobalt presently gets priced is the way LIBOR was getting priced. Now, wow. I don't know that it's being globally manipulated by a couple of incredibly well-connected people in the city of London for their own personal gain, but there's certainly no reason not to believe that. Thing. Yeah. Um, and so the possibility of setting up an alternative marketplace for these things would be extremely valuable to the people that actually make and use this stuff to clarify how valuable it is to try to get it and what it actually costs to acquire it in the first place. So we talked previously, I think the even the episode was you know, talking about trying to beat the house effectively like a casino and that the, the what people miss in the quote-unquote market, that they're housed inside of a, a vested interest, right? There's always someone... The house is always designed to win in some regard. In terms of the coordinated discovery market piece, what are you? Tr what's the ultimate benefit there? How does that the quote unquote vested interest actually? Is it in their best interest, or is it ultimately a very different model which is competing with the current casino setup? So this does compete with the current model, but what the way that it does that is by offering every person that was inside a CDM or coordinated discovery model, a better deal than the existing model offers them. Right. Uh, and so right now, 
an operator has fairly thin margins and very large regulatory and data requirements. The CME group, which is the world number one, is generating more than a petabyte at this point of data every year. And they have to store that and they make about a quarter of their revenue selling it. So they, they've got to keep it in high value storage and, and have a ton of bandwidth to be able to ship it out and so on. And the processing time on this is so great. Years ago, I was talking to the guy that ran the the processing computers for the New York Stock Exchange. The pace that the exchange needs to operate at is so great that they can't actually do the full auditing required to be able to track what's going on to the degree required for regulatory compliance. Right. But what they can do is recreate any given time period in an isolated computer setup and then watch it in slow-mo. The, they're moving so quickly, they don't have time to check that everything's fine. But yeah. if there's a concern about anything that happened, they can go back and rerun the tape and put other systems next to it that can watch that happen at speeds that can actually keep up. What this does is dramatically drops the amount of processing power the operator requires, which makes their regulatory compliance problems much simpler. And it also allows them to control their own margins, which is something the existing system does not allow. And existing market operators essentially have to strive to become a global benchmark or go out of business. Whereas with a CDM, because you're capable of offering stably good deals and you can effectively import data from the global benchmarks at less than the cost it took them to develop in the first place, then you can operate side by side with the global benchmarks and underprice them. And so you can basically chew up their market share by offering their critical customers the same prices or better prices in a more stable environment. And the same thing goes for each of the three roles within the marketplace, the producer, the negotiator, and the consumer. Producers and consumers get greater stability and lower cost, which is what they're after. The negotiators get radically higher rates of return. And again, the market operator gets to control that rate of return. So whereas somebody like... Warren Buffett, who wasn't really a commodities guy, he was in the stock space, but he's basically became globally famous for putting together a few decades of 35-ish percent returns. Yeah, uh, A CDM can be constructed where the average rate of return would be three or 10 times higher than that. And yeah. the difference between being three or 10 would be whether the market operator wanted it to be three or 10 when they set it up in the first place. Yeah. Wow. Okay. It's, I guess the thing which strikes me about what you say and what resonates so strongly, I think, with this show is that it is, you're saying that more data is actually producing a, a dumber system, if I was to put that in a yeah, very, yeah. I've gone into way. this before, but in, if you keep going in physics, they'll eventually teach you about energy and how a system's total energy is constant if mm. there's no leakage. And so you can analyze things that way. But if you get into engineering, you start finding out that energy gets divided up into heat and work. 
And work is energy that's doing something that somebody wants to have happen. And heat is everything else. You're driving your car, you hit the brakes, it starts slowing down, it's turning the kinetic energy of your car into heat in the brake pads is what it's doing. So that energy is getting converted and it gets converted into something that's just wasted. It doesn't have to be wasted. Some cars like F1s are using radical recirculation systems to to capture those micro energy things and pull them back in so they can drive even faster. Information is very much akin to energy. That's physically and logically true. And it's one of the big discoveries of the 20th century we don't talk about enough. And again, information doesn't have to be useful to people. So in in communication, we use signal and noise. And so information that's useful to somebody is signal. Everything else is noise. And what noise does is it uh, fills up the channel. So you've only got so much attention. If you've got, if you've got a very important business that's very focused on information that is of a very specific type so that you can have computers to do infrastructure tasks for you, they've only got a very specific amount of attention to, to put to them. And yeah. so by filling those channels up with noise, the people who make money in a system based around having an advantage over your opponent gain advantages over their opponents. And historically, stuffing noise into channels was highly expensive. Everyone's seen the rise of ChatGPT over the last year. Systems that work on that principle have been plugged into the world's marketplaces for longer than most living humans have been alive. Global median age is somewhere in the mid to late 20s at this point. Computerization of the world's primary markets started in the late 70s, early 80s. Right. Okay. So you're saying, and this kind of comes to the point you said right at the start, that AIs are effectively just lying to each other at this point. Can you just extrapolate on that a little bit more for those who are less familiar with this kind of world and, and what you mean by by that and how that's creating additional noise to extend that metaphor? Absolutely. So the people may or may not have heard of the flash crash. There was, I would say the first actual flash crash was the 87 crash. But imagine a scenario where you have what looks like a pretty good money-making investment. You've taken a look at some company and you look at their balance sheet and you say, hey, Mm. These guys have a pretty decent proposition. They make great money. And based on the amount of money they make and the amount of money it looks like they're going to keep making, they're undervalued in the marketplace. So I'm going to buy that stuff. But anything can happen on any given day or any given second. I'm going to have a computer watch the market very closely. And every time it looks like they're about to go down or they go down even a tiny bit, I'll have that computer move real quick, hop out of the marketplace... And then once they start coming back up, I'll hop right back in. And so I'll get all of the upside, but I'll have none of the downside. And you're the only person doing this, and it's fantastic. Suddenly, there have been a number of studies you may or may not have ever seen these, but if you're in the market for thirty any 30-year time period, like going back to the Great Depression, it's better than basically anything else you could do. 
Right. But if you were only in the market on its five best days over that like 30-year period, you would do better than if you'd been in the market for the entire 30 years. Yeah. But if you really wanted to do well, what you'd do is you'd be in for the entire third year period, except for the five worst days. Go ahead. Okay. That's the real money. So you de-risk yourself and everything's cool. But then other people see what's going on. Other people want to make more money. And also, <laughs> if you're de-risked, why do all this exercise and work of trying to find this really great company that nobody else knows about that's yeah. undervalued that then you just do a little bit better on? Just do it for everything. Yeah. Like, okay. It doesn't matter, right? You don't have any risk. And then so suddenly, lots and lots of people all have algorithms that are all looking around, paranoid, hoping that no bad thing will happen. And then something that might not even be bad, but just a lull or something else. Something clicks over one of them and it says, okay, I'm taking all my chips off the table, right? And yeah. the other ones all also say, oh, chips are coming off the table. We're taking our chips off the table. And suddenly the entire market crashes. Something yeah. bad happened? No, nothing bad happened. A flash crash, not a general flash crash. It doesn't happen that way that often anymore. But pretty much at least one issue flash crashes in some market every day, period, these days, because the world's just like that. Interesting. So we've got, we've got dumber, even though we've got smarter to some regard. And what you're saying is that everyone's trying to mitigate, everyone's trying to find the five worst days, right? Because that's, but the cost of that is you get higher levels of volatility because of these crash pieces. That, is that right, Noah? Yeah. And another thing to bear in mind, human beings are weaker these days than we were pre-civilization. And I'm talking way back pre-civilization. But if you look at skeletons, if you look at the skeletons of people from about 100,000 years ago, they're still human yes. beings, but they're... Their bones are thicker. Their skulls are thicker. There's a mud track fossil. And I think this is actually a pre-human hominid, but there's a mud track fossil from quite some time ago that the scientists have measured the distances on and said, okay, this was a running person. And this person, if he was running the 100-yard dash, would have crushed Usain Bolt. Like, it wow. would have been close to close. Okay. And... It, that's a random fossil. Maybe it's miraculously the single most athletic human being who's ever lived, or maybe back when people were in a tight Darwinian race doing hunter-gathering, yeah. uh, there was a lot more selection for physical capacity, and sure. people were a lot stronger and tougher than they are these days. Makes sense, But yeah. I can lift more weight than any human being who will ever live because Archimedes invented block and tackle. And so by setting up some pulleys, I can yeah. multiply the force by noodle arms by a factor of 10,000 yep. and casually pick up a boat if I want to. Yeah. Um, so we have machines that don't exactly think, but can do 
thought-like processing. Mm -hmm. Remember things for us. They can associate things for us. Now with some of these AI-ish systems, they can make decisions for us. But just if you just took a bunch of modern construction equipment and handed it off to a Stone Age tribe in the Amazon, they wouldn't instantaneously also be able to build a skyscraper. They would be able to form a different kind of civilization, uh, yeah. particularly if we offered them an unending supply of gasoline to keep everything going. But that's where we are. We just created all of these machines that can do a lot of the things that mm. used to require our attention and yeah. thoughts and decision-making. And if we come up with ways to utilize those things, one possibility is that we might actually be able to become dumber and be okay with that. Yeah. Um, but, <laughs> but I'm focusing more on the aspect of how we would actually be able to exploit them to make better decisions, whereas what they're mostly doing is just breaking our existing systems from making decisions. And it, it looks like, given what's happening at the moment, and I mean that from a, we're seeing inflated pricing across the board around, let's say, just food as a good example right now. Like We're seeing significant levels in terms of inflation there. And you mentioned just before we jumped on the call, what's happening in the Red Sea, given the yeah, the kind of the new, seemingly new conflict between Iran and, and some of the kind of supported groups. So what do you see, how does this kind of the CDM piece help improve that piece where there is these can, uh, potential conflicts and potential that have global ramifications when you start to think about the Red Sea and, and its uh, geography and its use? One of the major issues that we have is that these things aren't just some meaningless game that a handful of billionaires get to play with each other. We're also actually operating all of our economies off of them. And mm. there's an enormous amount of misallocation of resources, not least of which the billionaires are the billionaires themselves. And so we're focused on doing things that aren't really all that valuable to us. Yep. And we've been focused on doing things that aren't particularly valuable to us for decades now. And so as a result of that, these systems, which can't really tell us the truth anymore, have effectively told everybody that there's significantly more wealth than there actually is, mostly in the paper balances of the world's wealthiest people. People like Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk are hypothetically 100 billionaires, but that's because of what the market says that the companies that they have large shares of are worth. And yes. those values aren't liquidatable, but the financial industry is perfectly happy to extend them credit on the basis that they could be liquidatable, which they aren't. And then that credit flows out and raises the total amount of money that exists and yeah, suddenly right. inflation. And they are minor characters in this story compared to yep. governments that are also doing precisely and exactly the same thing and yep. doing so again for decades at this point. So effectively, the world's wealthy and powerful people have been using funny money for the last pretty much decade and a half at this point. And that funny money has now filtered out enough to the rest of us that we are demanding 
a, a bigger share of it to make our systems go. Where CDM would greatly aid this circumstance is that number one, it's focused on navigating through time in the most economically beneficial fashion for the producers and the consumers. And so it would be able to give us a much better map of how to get out of this with the least amount of pain, because that's Mm. whatever the least pain path is out of this is exactly what is the coalescive force that will bring everybody together within the CDM. And also because the CDM does not have a mechanism, one of the one of the side effects of this having your computer sort of watching things and jumping in all of a sudden type of behaviors that modern markets have is that there's a lot of transactions for every actual delivery. And so the, that number has gone up by a factor of 10 just in the last quarter century or so. Wow. And that's those transactions all need to be backed by actual capital, which again is incredibly inflationary. Prices have not gone up by a factor of 10 yet, but in order for the scales to balance and for the actual accounts to come due, some combination of prices going up by a factor of 10 or the diminishment of the wealth of the wealthy, including the wealth of sovereigns and corporations and so on, would have to make up that gap difference. So you're saying because there's almost like a debasing in that, like you said, it's this, this, let's pick on Elon Musk just given he's such a public figure. So his net worth predominantly is Tesla and SpaceX, et cetera. Because the banks are going, oh, that worth, well, let's say that company's worth $100 billion or let's say whatever, they're saying you own 20%. Okay, cool. Can lend you that security, even though, as you say, if, if Elon Musk sold $20 billion worth of securities, then that company's all of a sudden not going to be worth $100 billion. So you're saying that because they're lending that as a, they're treating it as a liquid asset, it just is a justification for then creating that money supply. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, so $20 billion that didn't use to exist exists now, and Elon uses it to buy something. Yeah. How about Twitter, for example? And the people that used to own Twitter now have $20 billion they didn't have a second ago, and they buy wedding cakes for their kids or whatever the hell they want to buy with it. And suddenly people goes. hey, where's all this money come from? I guess I need a lot more to walk dogs because... For some reason, cheese costs fifty percent more at the grocery store. Yeah. So you're saying, okay, so you could track inflation from just purely unlimited credit access at the at, at a very kind of that's a very rudimentary example, but it's you extrapolate that across sovereign nations, whatever. Yes, yes, yeah. At, at the sovereign nation level is where it really gets going. And one telling point, I believe it was in the immediate aftermath of the global financial crisis. The Fed, the U.S. Fed, used to publish, I think it was the M3 figures, and that is the total amount of money and credit that exists on Earth. And that number started going really crazy. And they were like, we're going to, nobody actually cares about this number, so we're going to stop telling anybody what it is. And they did, and they were right. There was not a popular cry, and they didn't all go to jail. But 
pretty much since the events that were depicted in the film The Big Short, the U.S. government has been spending around a trillion dollars that they don't have every year. The EU has been spending around $2 trillion of equivalent value of euros that they don't have every year. And the Chinese government has been spending around $3 trillion equivalent dollar value of yuan that they don't have every year. So we've got, which is all a precursor to significant inflation, which is now what we're starting to see. Right. right? Yes, exactly. Because um, the money supply is so high, there is all this fresh cash that, and that explains why, where I'm talking to you from Australia, like during COVID, property prices didn't just go up in like certain parts, they went up everywhere. And so it's not, well, everyone's kind yeah. of feeling wealthier, but they're not, relatively speaking, they're not. Right, exactly. Yeah, it's the same asset. I've gone over this before, but the way I describe it is that there's basically three phases of inflation. Phase one of inflation is asset prices go up, and everybody likes phase one. People mm. that have assets are really happy to say, <laughs> yeah. I'm a genius because all of my assets are worth more money. And people that don't have assets actually don't get that pissed off either. They, they're like aspirational. They're like, oh, I can go out and get some stocks someday, and I will also be a free millionaire. Phase two is commodity prices start going. And some people like that commodity producers generally, and some people don't like that so much. But phase three is when wages start going up and everybody hates phase three. And that's right. when, as of now, the, the news starts filling up with, oh, what are we going to do about the, all this inflation? And why can't government stamp out inflation? And the problem is that the only time you can stop inflation is phase one. And if you don't print the money, then there isn't any inflation. Yeah. And they, and they print it handsomely. So do you think that third phase you're talking about, though, this could be different, given that with the rise of AI and its capabilities, and do you feel that could be a counterinflationary measure, or would it just draw it out? It definitely can be a counterinflationary measure because the value proposition of the leaders of a society are organizations. And so there's a certain amount of scheduling, decision-making, prioritization that's important and critical to large organized circumstances. And having better choices made leads to better outcomes, generally speaking. But AI is precisely and specifically good at that exact task. And yeah. computers are so cheap that I own one. If we have these systems that can provide that prioritization and scheduling and decision-making for the cost of a few nickels and dimes instead of some hundred billionaire that needs private jet fleet for his yacht or whatever, that's massively deflationary. And so services could be provided at rapidly lower costs. To put that commodity market overheads in this country alone are on the order of a trillion dollars a year. And what do you, sorry, what do you mean by that? The amount of money that winds up getting chewed up out of the economy simply to make the deals. Oh, so okay. This like is a mission, as they tell. If, yeah, it's a bit more spread out and a little bit more complicated than that. But basically, if you add up all the money that the people that actually take delivery of 
wheat and corn and steel and silk and stuff like that mm-hmm. pay and then subtract out all the money that the people that actually made that stuff and stuck it in the warehouse in the first place actually got that difference is around a trillion dollars and that's just in this country we're about a sixth of the global economy yeah and and taking that cost level down by i usually use 90 percent, but even 50 percent would heavily ameliorate the the degree of inflationary pressure that exists across the board fascinating noah when it comes to 2024 what are you most excited about in terms of what's from, or maybe what are you most intrigued to see how it plays out given the state of the economic markets and, and what we've got and, what, and what's happening currently? I think that the intense move in AI is pretty exciting. And in particular, the degree to which it's so much of it's happening in open source and spread out. Uh, Mm -hmm. That's going to, at one side, improve some possibilities in terms of these much better tools and decisions that can be made. For example, the Google DeepMind team just had a, excuse me, publication in Nature just last week about a system that could do synthetic geometry, which is basically the kind of geometry you do in grade school, Euclid with the lines and the straight edges and stuff. But there's something called the International Mathematical Olympia, which is pretty much one of the hardest math tests in the world. Okay. You guys actually have one of the greatest practitioners in the history. Oh, dang. I'm not going to be able to remember his name now. But there was, a, there was an Australian who at six got a gold medal on your team. Okay, uh, It's all kids that do these things. And the average score for gold medal winners, basically the number one math doer is 25.9. And this AI can get about 25 points. So it's not quite as high performing as the very highest performing people are. Yeah, that's pretty good. But it does outperform the second highest performing people. Yeah. And so that's highly encouraging. But the other side of it is that the amount of just sheer noise that's going to be generated by people asking AIs to write them complaints to their editor or or call up their congressman or spam some business that they're having a hard time with is going to pretty radically change the ability and capability of our existing systems to hold themselves together. And I think that in combination with just how much existential destability or whatever we're actually seeing on Mm -hmm. political fronts, cultural fronts, there's going to be more and more appetite for actually doing new things. Yep. to solve new problems. And that's the number one challenge to the adoption of my system is a lot of people say, hey, we've been doing this for 800 years and it's fine. Why would I want to do anything? Yeah, I got you. Well, you certainly sound well positioned. You're in the right country given the appetite for change and, and given the, 
track record and allocating capital, it certainly sounds, it could only be a matter of time in terms of the, the CDM piece, right? I hope so. Yeah. And just keep plugging away. Yeah. Awesome. Noah, thank you so much for joining us. It's been great to check in with you and get an update. I always feel wildly more smart, much smarter after finishing a conversation with you. But then it's also one of those kind of, wow, I really have no idea about a bunch of stuff. So thank you so much for your insights and, and taking the time to chat with us. Absolutely. I had a great time. 